You're listening to the Today's Conveyancer podcast, the leading source of information for residential property lawyers in England and Wales. Don't forget to subscribe and sign up to our free newsletter at todaysconveyancer.co.uk. You can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Today's Conveyancer podcast. In a slight change of direction this week, I'm joined by Amy Bell. Known to many of you, Amy is a director at Teal Compliance and is also a member of the Law Society's Anti-Money Laundering Task Force. I've asked Amy to join us on the podcast today to talk about the impact of sanctions on conveyances. Uh, Clearly, the situation in Russia and Ukraine uh, is having not just a a global impact, but also an impact on your anti-money laundering procedures and I just thought it was worth finding out what if anything has changed so thank you very much indeed for joining Amy. Thanks for having me on David. Uh, I've got a few questions and I'm sure we'll sort of talk around uh, a number of the issues but we've seen the UK ramping up their response to the crisis uh, and uh, crackdown on Russian oligarchs and sanctions being placed on more Russian individuals in the UK I think most people kind of got an idea, but but can you just tell us what is a sanction uh, and what does it mean for conveyances? So there are various different sanctions. I mean, essentially, a sanction is a tool used by a government to try and influence the behaviour of somebody else somewhere else. So sanctions can be applied against countries. They can be applied against companies and also against individuals. And there are quite a few different sanctions lists. So the UK has one. America has a different one. The EU has a different one. Um, And depending what you're trying to do for the client, it will depend on which ones are going to be relevant to you. So obviously, we're not in Europe anymore. So we're normally looking at the UK sanctions list. But if what you're trying to do with a client has got any element of moving money, the American sanctions list is likely also to impact um, not necessarily what you're doing, but your bank. Um, Here's the interesting thing that uh, you might not know about um, America. Um, Basically, the world's money system uh, works in dollars. And so if America um, decides to sanction something because um, the transactions going through the banking system are going through in dollars, that means that the uh, sanctions from America have like extraterritorial reach. So, um, yeah, so what the real impact for conveyances is if you're acting for someone who's sanctioned by the UK, you'll be prevented from uh, doing that without getting a license. It's actually an offence. But also, even if you got a license, you might not even be able to move the money through the client account because your bank would need to get a license and maybe wouldn't want to. Um, So that's the real practical impact uh, of it. Um, as I say, it's an offence to make funds available for a person who is sanctioned. That's basically the offence. It is possible to do that. I mean, you, you've probably seen in the news Chelsea and they've been obviously Roman Abramovich has been sanctioned and that will extend to his assets. Um, but they are able to do some things, um, including think about um, transferring the assets to somebody else. Um, and it's likely that they will need to have got um, uh, what's called a license um, from OFSI, which is the branch of the government that um, gives the, uh, the permissions, if you like. The purpose of, of that is so that the government knows what these people are doing, really. Uh, they can keep an eye on it. Both the SRA and the CLC have released reminders 
in in recent weeks in response to uh, the the Russia Ukraine crisis. What, if anything, has changed? That there are just more people on the lists. There there are more people on the list. I think there's two things actually that we probably should recognise is going on here. Um, for many, many conveyances, many of the people that we speak to, uh, I speak to, you speak to, David, they're working in, in smaller local firms. Um, they're working with people who are known to them or in the local area and so have absolutely nothing to do with Russian oligarchs. Um, uh, and, and so for the vast majority of people, in real terms, not a lot has changed, but there is absolutely a cohort of law firms that a lot has changed for, actually. Um, there are uh, many firms and accountancy firms, same thing, but opened up or have been um, working in the Russian markets and have been working uh, with um, oligarchs. Um, now, why are there so many of them and why have we been working with them and how they've been able to buy stuff and all this property and things like that? Here's the thing. Many of these oligarchs that are, we're targeting now are people who have been able to get um, what they call in the trade a golden visa, essentially commit to invest a certain amount of money and you can have a visa. And I think in the early days of that um, uh, scheme, and the UK isn't the only place that has that kind of scheme, you know, Cyprus, I mean, even Spain, like a lot of people were uh, since Brexit wanting to retire to Spain like my good self, David and I spoke about this before, um, you know, if you haven't got an EU passport, then you could get yourself a, a, an investor visa by investing a certain amount in the in the um, jurisdictions. And there's very common things. Now, here's the thing. You would think, wouldn't you, if a government has issued a visa saying you can spend money in this country, in fact, please do, that's why I've given you the visa, that you'd think their source of funds, source of wealth would be all right, wouldn't you? Because they've given a government visa to do it. Uh, but there's the thing you see um people might not have done the right due diligence might not have understood properly the source of funds source of wealth because they've seen this visa and gone well it's okay then um and i think that where, where we find ourselves is that firms have been acting acting for people they may have been acting for them because as i say they've got a visa and there's been an assumption that there's an issue in most of the larger firms um though they will have specialists that understand russia you know, not that relevant to most conveyances, but it, uh, there's going to be a real dissection, really, of um, what is the difference between acting for a client and making sure that you're not doing money laundering or anything, you know, that, that feels dodgy. Um, uh, uh, because you can't prove that, you know, you've not got enough information about it, that they are dodgy. And, and is that enough to say it's OK to act for them? Um, or should we be thinking about what morally they might have done? And I think for the longest time we've sit, we've visited this this uh, kind of moral question a few times recently. Um, after the Panada, Pan, Panama Papers, Paradise Papers, Pandora's, I think we're up to now. I don't know if they've got any more peas to trot out for the next scandal. But basically, you know what we see in those um, cases. Um, and actually, to a large extent, to the people who've been acting for uh, Russian clients now, the lawyers haven't done anything wrong. In fact, the lawyers will probably tell you that they are required by their professional obligation to act in the best interests of their clients. So if they've been acting for clients in a way that is legal, um, or they've got to a place where their assets look and feel like they're legal, from you know, on a risk-based approach, um, they've they've acted. 
Um, and I'm sure they will say, you know, that, that as I say, they've, they've um, done what they needed to do. A client is entitled to get legal advice. But what we're seeing is this kind of public outcry about what do you mean you're acting for these people who obviously couldn't be that wealthy legally from Russia? Um, and it's just bringing a lot of pressure and spotlight onto the sector. And where this will go, I mean, I did a post about this uh, last week. If I had my crystal ball out, I'd be saying, where's this going to take us? It's going to look, it's going to mean that there's going to be extra scrutiny probably on all of us in the legal sector about how well we're understanding a client source of funds, source of wealth. Because they won't just put a rule out that just applies to people in city firms that if your client is from Russia, you must do X, Y and Z. The thing will be you must have a, a source of funds, source of wealth process that establishes a client's source of funds, source of wealth and that you'll have to deploy uniformly. I mean, uh, hopefully subject to risk. If we're lucky, we'll maintain that. Um, I hope we will. Um, but for the average person working in conveyancing in a local firm, smaller firm, I think the, there are two things that this means for you. You're not likely to suddenly start onboarding Russian clients, although I will talk about that if you happen to get any through the door in a minute. But um, you are likely to um, experience or the sector. Is it going to experience more supervision activity? I think we've already seen that, actually. I think the SRA in particular has already come out and said we're going to be spot checking the firms where we think they might have Russian clients to make sure you've done your compliance properly. Um, so more supervisory activity and secondly, more disciplining in the event of non-compliance. Now, people who know me, who've heard me speak before, will probably remember that for, for me, I don't do this because I'm scared of a regulator and I don't want you to be scared of regulators either, but I'd be doing you a disservice if I didn't tell you it was a real risk. The, the scrutiny that there is now in the legal sector being the professional enablers of the oligarchs using our financial system to hide their ill-gotten gains, which is the narrative that is, is going around, will mean that regulators in the space will be expected to take any non-compliances very seriously and to demonstrate that. Um, and so I think in real practical terms, following your firm's policies and procedures is going to be the most important thing that you can do. Because if a regulator does inve investigate something and they might, you know, then if your firm's not got any Russian clients, you're like, oh, well, then nothing to see here. But if they are ramping up their supervision activity, they just pick files at random. And if they see non-compliance on those files, whether there's any money laundering or not, if there's non-compliance, then they're likely to pursue discipline. Whether that's kind of unofficial discipline where they write to you and give you a compliance plan and you have to promise to fix everything, or it's formal where they refer you to the Solicitor's Disciplinary Tribunal, and time will tell. But um, the best thing that your listeners can do is make sure that they have followed the firm's compliance um, and that they can demonstrate that. One thing I often find when I'm auditing firms especially when I'm talking about source of funds, source of wealth, is that the lawyers can tell me about the source of funds, source of wealth, but I can't see it on the file. And what I think the best thing to do to protect yourself is make sure that if that file, I mean, it's a you know needle in a haystack, the chances of any particular file being uh, called for in an audit, obviously very small, but it's good practice. And I would encourage every conveyancer to think about this. What we need to see as auditors or regulators is when we pick the file up, we need to see on the file that you've understood the source of funds source of wealth, not just that you've had a chat with the client about it, they told you something, you didn't think anything was wrong, so you just cracked on. 
the record keeping here is critical because it's your defence. It's your proof you did what you're supposed to do. Um, so in real terms, I think that I'm sure conveyances, in my experience, very diligent at AML compliance, especially ID documents and things like that. Um, and collecting source of fund, source of wealth information in, I think also they're quite good at. Where there's there's a gap, if there is one, it's in demonstrating that you've viewed that information and you've addressed your mind to the risk and um, and written that down. So um, I often find myself saying to money laundering reporting officers or money laundering compliance officers, have you given the people in your firm a process? Is there a form they have to fill in or is there a file note they're supposed to complete that says they've done this? Um, because if your firm hasn't got one, I would start making your own. If you are the MLCO or the MLRO, please make sure you've got a process to make it easy for people to get the credit for the work that they're doing. That's that's really what it's about. You've talked about UK sanctions lists, um, US sanctions lists, clearly, as you say, no longer in the EU. So we're, we're now subject to other countries sanctions lists. How can you identify people on sanctions lists without spending hours trawling through them? Um, and even then, how can you be sure that you have the same person? There must be an equivalent of a John Smith in Russia. I'm sure there is. It's, I mean, it's a $64,000 question, right? How do we make this job easy? Um, how do we make AML compliance easy? So there are various ways of doing it. OK, so first of all, very low tech, very cheap. The government list is published and it's a searchable Excel document you can search. I think actually they might have put it on a portal recently. We can literally stick a name in it and it'll tell you. But you're right, you'll get false positives. Since COVID, we've seen much wider adoption in the section of using electronic verification systems. There are very uh, many providers that... Um, the SRA recently published some findings of some of their work and, and noted that across the, I think it was 81 firms that they visited, there were 25 different providers. So there's lots out there. Now, there, there are these sanctions lists. They're often clumped in with something which you might also be aware with politically exposed people lists. These oligarchs uh, could be politically exposed people um, rather than just sanctioned. And, and whether you get a hit for either, it in my experience, 95% of the times you've got a false positive. So you, you use the electronic search, put the details in, and it brings back anyone with the matching name. And you've got to work out whether that's your client or not. There's a couple of things that you can do. Some of the systems will match date of birth. So if you've got date of birth um, and you're putting that in to the search uh, fields, then sometimes that can be checked and that can eliminate a lot of false positives. Uh, the simple thing that I've always done is I just Google the name that's matched and figure out who the who the person is that's triggered the match and then think, is that the person I just met? But so, no, it's not very high tech, but it's just literally getting to a place where you're comfortable that that's not the person. The other thing I should say about sanctions lists is they're not just full of Russian people. There's all kinds of people with like actually pretty run of the mill names that live in Blackpool or somewhere like that. So, you know, there's not necessarily um, going to be people with um, exotic names. Um, but yeah, I think whether it's peps or whether it's sanctions, the other thing that you should be aware of with sanctions is quite often you're doing your sanction checking as part of your client onboarding. But as you can see, 
the sanctions regime can move incredibly quickly. They can just, you know, you've seen in the last three weeks they've mobilised and done, I don't know, lost count of how many updates have been. Um, so um, here's the thing. The offence is making funds available to a person. And um, so a person could become sanctioned. So one thing that you should really think about, um, probably not if you don't think you're ever going to get any sanctioned people in. But um, if you think that you've got a client base, especially if you're like doing niche, you know, boutique conveyancing type stuff, high net worth um, individuals, properties, things like that. Or if you do happen to have um, any clients that, that um, are associated with the regular places that we consider to be high risk, um, then I would think about whether you should repeat your sanctions check. Some of the services that are out there will let you know if a search that you've done changes. Not all of them do, though. So it's worth checking out with your provider what they're actually checking, if they rescreen that for you um, um, and how you might need to rescreen it yourself before you make the funds available. Um, if there's anyone listening that does other work like private client work or like I was a PI lawyer back in the day, um, you know, and I'd be making funds available to people by giving them their damages or I was um, distributing uh, an estate. So one thing that I think people often miss with sanctions checking is they're just doing it on their clients and at the beginning rather than thinking about what if a person becomes sanctioned or what if it's a person who isn't our client but we are making funds available available to. Whether you do that or not will probably depend on your risk profile overall. I think somewhere in that you've answered this question, how can the industry remain vigilant as more sanctions are imposed? Is there anything that you can add to that? Or, or... Yeah, I, I, th I think I think there's definitely thinking about whether you've got a risk profile where you need to repeat the sanction check-in. Um, definitely keeping yourself up to date. Um, there are fortunately um, very um, helpful guides being produced by people who work in this space. The majority of the work that I do is working with local high street national firms. Uh, we do do a lot of work with the international firms, but those international firms have specialists in dealing with sanctions. And, and so there's a lot of those big city firms that are putting out a lot of really useful information. I share it if I see it. Um, so if you follow me on LinkedIn, you'll be able to find it from me. But um, Evershed is putting some great stuff out. I saw something great from Clyde & Co today. So um, certainly making sure that you're getting receiving these things. You can also register um, with Offsy to get updates sent straight into your inbox, um, which is probably a good idea. I think the bigger picture thing, which I'm sure um, some of our city firm colleagues are, are thinking about is where's the future and what, whether you do start to put some of these client types outside of your risk appetite. You know, we all have to, um, if we're work, doing work that's regulated by the money laundering regulations, carry out a firm wide risk assessment. And um, I think periodically the firm should be thinking, have we got any boundaries where we don't think that we want to act for those people? And that might be because of this kind of live situation that we've got um, in Russia and, and that. But, um, you know, it's not the only regime where people might feel that um, how people are funding those um conflict um, is sits comfortably with us or not. I definitely think it's going to be really interesting to see how firms move forward with this and thinking about how uh, reputational risk factors into their risk assessment. For me, I, I was once asked this, I don't know if I told you this before, David, but a few, low, years ago now, 
seven or eight years ago, I was invited to a conference and I was speaking. Someone in the audience said to me, Amy, what kind of due diligence would you do if you got a Russian client? And I said, do you know what? I wouldn't act if I got a Russian client. And there was a gasp from the room because I said I wouldn't act from everybody um, there at the Law Society. Like, oh, I can't say that. I said, listen, I'm not being prejudiced to people from Russia. The thing is, if I've got someone who's a high net worth individual from Russia, I do not know enough about how they made their money to be comfortable that I can satisfy do I understand the purpose and nature source fund source of wealth? So it's likely to be outside my risk appetite, my personal one. But that rule of thumb, if there's something where you think you can't get comfortable with a source of fund source of wealth, and there are particular factors related to that, crypto might be one, um, companies that are in secrecy jurisdictions where you're struggling to get the source of fund source of wealth or the beneficial ownership information, but a lot of firms who don't have analysts, don't have people who can uncover stuff about clients like this or don't understand the corporate structures and why they're doing what they're doing, I would say you might want to think about whether you want to take those jobs on. Here's the thing. When I've come across clients who don't do sanctions work regularly, so I just mentioned a lot of the big city firms will have a department and a team that do sanctions work, and I know a lot of the people who work in that space, and they're very good at it. Um, but for your average firm that isn't specialising that, or don't have specialist lawyers in that, to go and get that licence from Offsea to go and act for that client is likely to wipe out the profit in the job, if I'm honest. It's a dear do, it's a faff, um, and it takes quite a lot of time, and you've got to keep constantly looking at it. Um, so normally, you know, clients that are in the risk profile where they might be sanctioned or might become sanctioned, for the vast majority of us, I would say if your firm doesn't understand how to how to manage these sanction risks, I would steer, steer well clear. And there's an argument here that somebody who perhaps was dodgy, for want of a better word, is going to choose to uh, instruct a firm that that doesn't have that that sort of level of risk interrogation to avoid detection. I think I think that's absolutely right. I mean, listen, I'm not saying that all of um, everybody who's who's been successful in Russia or a number of other countries that I could name are baddies. OK, but it's certainly true that somebody who wants to get underneath the radar is not necessarily going to go to a firm that has specialisms either in the areas that they're working, whether that's the countries or the industries where they've made the money. They're going to pick someone else. And when I've seen this in practice, where these kinds of risks crystallise, that it's usually... Um, such an instruction that it dazzles everybody the size of the instructions just dazzles everybody and they kind of um talk themselves into doing something that they really shouldn't do and that's why as a compliance person um I always go back to do you actually know enough about this I know it sounds fantastic that this person wants to instruct your firm for this and it's it's great and everything but do you know if if it goes wrong do you know how much it's going to cost us if it starts to get complicated, do you know how much it's going to cost us? And I think, you know, compliance people, we often get a bad rep, you know, for being the people who say no all the time. But as I said, when this first kicked off, your compliance people are literally trying to keep you safe. They're not trying to stop you doing work. They're trying to make sure that if someone knocks on the door, be it the regulator or the police or justice, you're named in the Houses of Commons for acting for somebody, you know, as happened recently. Your compliance people are there trying to keep you safe. And it, it can be really hard, um, you know, when 
you've got clients, you, you built a rapport, a relationship with these clients and compliance is saying, Do you know what, there's some things here that you, you just need to be careful about. You need to be, um, uh, you know, inquiries you need to make, questions you need to ask. It's all there to try and protect you. That's all it's there for. Um, so, yeah, please, we're not just the people who say no. I'd rather think of us as an emergency service trying to protect you, you know. If it's too good to be true, it probably is. Yeah, well, you know, sometimes we're lucky. Sometimes we're lucky. Going back to football, which is a, which is a very fraught um, uh, subject in my house. I'm a United fan and my husband's a City fan. And, uh, you know, we're watching the um, the reaction of Chelsea fans, you know, and they're saying, well, it's not our fault. We were here before he came along with his money. And, and you know, I, and I just think hindsight is just such a wonderful thing, isn't it? Um, where you're like, oh, well, you know, maybe that wasn't ideal. <laughs> maybe we shouldn't have done that. But uh, I think what is happening more and more, as I said at the very beginning, um, is that the, the, we're muddying up legal representation with what we should and shouldn't do. Um, and I just think that um, that something that looks an amazing deal, I think you do have to think about that. A, a few of my firms actually have, um, there's almost a, um, a third um risk assessment that goes on in the firm is like the first one is do we know how to do this work properly first question second one do we know enough about this client third one reputationally do we want to do this or not um and i just think we'll see that more and more going forward um as this plays out um, the world is a very different place um than it was 10 20 years ago and certainly this um ratcheting up of um this reputation that unfortunately the UK has got for um money laundering not just us but the crown dependencies has got for secrecy jurisdictions and all of this um it it means that I think that it, it it's it's useful to to find someone to blame and I think we're getting under under that um umbrella I've spent seven years since the the phrase was first coined professional enabler I've spent seven years saying not anything I recognise in the profession. I don't recognise that we're a profession of people that are turning a blind eye So as long as we can get paid. The vast majority of us are not doing that, but it is, I, and I always say this, AML is one of the most political bits of law that you will ever come across. Um, because at the end of the day, countries' finances are wrapped up in it. So, you know, it suits other countries to say that a particular country is not great at their AML because then they get their work, right? Um, and... I've defended the reputation fiercely um, and said, you know, if if there are people out there who genuinely turn in a blind eye to to, to things that they shouldn't be doing and they're, the, they're breaking the law, they're not professional enablers, they're baddies and we should arrest them or kick them out of the profession. The rest of us are just trying to do the right thing by our clients and managing through a compliance regime which is designed to catch out the baddies when millions of people are not baddies um I, that and that's just the way it is and and I you know I say this all the time with compliance in a wider sense um we unfortunately in AML um people can interpret the the legislation in a way that is a sledgehammer to crack a nut you know we're hardly ever going to come across these people but we we might do one day um, and uh, so, yeah, I think that if I had my crystal ball, firms that are not serious about AML 
I'm sure all your listeners are, they wouldn't be listening to me. <laughs> Most people I come across are serious about it. Um, but if you're not serious about AML, um, you should expect um, for somebody else to be thinking about that. Um, whether it's the regulator thinking about the client types that you say that you do or whatever. Certainly, we should all recognise that conveyancing is high risk for money laundering, um, according to the National Risk Assessment and the SRA or the CLCs, whichever regulated risk assessment, they will all have to say that property work is high risk for money laundering. Uh, and so being able to demonstrate um, a proper risk-based approach proper risk assessment, proper ID and V documents and proper investigations into source of funds as well. Um, you would, if you're not already very disciplined about that as a firm, I would get disciplined quickly. Wise words as ever from Amy. That's been really interesting, Amy. Thank you so much. I'm very keen to uh, ensure that the community understands what the risks are with this particular situation. But as you say, we can't assume that, you know, Russia's unique. We have to uh, look at it in the round. Thank you very, very much indeed for joining. It's been a pleasure to chat. Thanks. Um, thank you very much indeed to everybody for listening. Keep your ears out for future Today's Conveyance podcasts. Uh, you can subscribe on your podcast provider and you can always find us on Today's Conveyancer. Thank you again, Amy. See you soon. See you soon. You're listening to the Today's Conveyancer podcast, the leading source of information for residential property lawyers in England and Wales. Don't forget to subscribe and sign up to our free newsletter at todaysconveyancer.co.uk. You can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.